Mary, why you bugging, girl? Oh, am I excited to have you back on the pod. For those of you who didn't catch the first episode with the Dame Mary Trump, please go into the Cycle Archives, take a listen at that too. It was a, a very long and uh, in real time and, and living in the in the dream back in 2020 uh, conversation with Mary about what we were facing. So um, go ahead and uh, check out that book. For, for those of you who don't remember, it's called Two much and never enough how my family created the world's most dangerous man and uh, you know it is a, it was a blockbuster of a book so i'm sure a lot of you did read it go back and listen to the pod it was a great conversation today i'm having mary on to talk about her new book that's called the reckoning our nation's trauma and finding a way to heal and this book is a book that you guys should be companion. I mean, my God, have you read book one? You got to read book two because these things go together. And it's important for uh, people to understand that this is a collective trauma. I, I love how Mary um, defines this as a national trauma, something that Mary's a psychologist. So she's trained in trauma, dealing with trauma. She's very up close uh, and personal in this book about her own trauma that she's gone through, um, you know, since Donald Trump descended that golden escalator. And uh, it's just such a great book to wrap around. Um, you know, that 2020 book was about uh, pulling off the Band-Aid of the Trump um, family grift, really, and, and really uncovering that Donald has been on this trajectory towards autocracy for a long time. And then this new book, which I think takes us into this post-Trump period and most importantly recognizes the role that we, the people, play in this. Uh, she has a quote in there. It says, um, you know, this people want to say this isn't who we are, but this is exactly who we are. And it's such an important point as we move through this 22 midterm is trying to get, you know, people especially are highly informed, engaged, know everything that's happened, are kind of mystified as how, how the Republican Party remains viable to take control of Congress. So, uh, Mary, good to have you back, girl. Hey, everybody. Rachel, it's so good to be back. Thank you for that intro. And uh, yeah, a couple of things have been happening since last we spoke. Sure has. <laughs> You've also launched your own podcast. Do you want to mm-hmm. give it a yeah, shot started... here? Uh, absolutely. It's It's got a very original title. It's called The Mary Trump Show. Um, and we actually started streaming live on YouTube every Thursday at seven o'clock Eastern time. Uh, So please check that out. And um, I also have a newsletter uh, called The Good in Us, which you can also check out. Um, But anyway, they're all new projects. And and as you mentioned, there's a lot going on and there's a lot that we need to counter. So I think the more uh, venues we use in order to do that, the better. Let's dig right into your new book. Uh, you know, I just, I think it's just so timely. Um, you know, this idea of a collective or national trauma is a big defining uh, feature, I think, right now. And we can see the evidence of that, um, you know, exhaustion from scandal and, you know, defeatism, blah, blah, blah. So, Mary, why don't you start us off by kind of talking about what collective trauma is in this book? Um, I got the idea for this book in September of 2020, so right before the election, when obviously we were in the midst of three interconnected crises, COVID, the economy, and the crisis of uh, democracy, basically. Uh, But I was mostly focused on, okay, what's going to happen when we start emerging from COVID? Little did I know that we never were going to. And I, I wanted to talk about 
the, the collective trauma we were all experiencing and how we were uh, processing those traumas differently. But then I realized I couldn't do that effectively. You know, there are 350 million people in this country having 350 million ex different experiences. So I decided to go back and look at how we got here in the first place. Like, how did we become a country that could put in office somebody as despicable, incompetent, and cruel as Donald, right? Um, how did we become a country that seemed that in which so many people seemed enamored of autocracy and were willing to let one particular political party, being the Republicans, continue down that road? So we are now at a point where the Republican Party, in my view, is a party of fascism. Uh, I think this project became even more important after the election. I mean, thankfully, Biden won. But 12 million more people voted for Donald in 2020 than did in 2016, which to me just exposed the extent to which the disease has metastasized. Uh, and I, I decided that to focus on what I believe are the two main reasons we've gotten here. One, uh, the deeply embedded racism in this country that has never been acknowledged, let alone atoned for, and simultaneously our continual failure to hold powerful, corrupt white men accountable, starting with Robert E. Lee and continuing to this day. Uh, last I checked, Donald Trump is still roaming free, as are all of his enablers, including two seditionists who are currently sitting on a judiciary committee and have the right to ask their racist, despicable questions to Judge Kadanji Jackson. Um, so I, I think I wanted to focus on those two things. It was also a very personal project for me, as you mentioned, because you know I grew up in a family of racists. I grew up a very privileged white person in the 70s and 80s. And I've been very aware my entire life of how that's impacted me and my approach to things. And in this book, I mean, what I really appreciated, uh, you know, in Too Much, Never Enough, you're really focused entirely, I think, outward, mostly outward. Um, and here it's really much more inward. And you, and you really start off by disclosing how traumatized you became by Donald Trump's not just run, but rise to the top of the Republican Party nomination and, and um, election and that you had to to take yourself out of out of your normal course of, of life and, and go and really assess, you know, how why is this bugging me so fundamentally? Can you talk a little bit about what your self-reflection, you know, um, concluded conclusion was? Sure. Uh, I think part of it was seeing once again the least worthy person being elevated. And, you know, in my family, I watched that happen in a, a very small context uh, with my dad and Donald. You know, my dad was a quite accomplished person, and he ended up dead at 42, uh, a spurned and disrespected alcoholic, whereas Donald was elevated at every opportunity. And then I saw it happening in my country. And it, I took it very personally. And I knew how bad it would get. I mean, I didn't know the specifics of how bad it could get, but I, I knew that it would be worse than most anybody so could imagine. So for the benefit of our audience, and can very you talk about what national trauma is? Very early on in Donald's administration, he proved me right. 
with the Muslim ban and then incarcerating, kidnapping and incarcerating children in concentration camps, and then, you know, killing, um, to date, a million people unnecessarily because he didn't want to be associated with some, anything negative, like a global pandemic, um, and made the calculation that focusing on the economy was more likely to get him reelected than uh, focusing on saving people's lives. So uh, I, was, I also felt very isolated by um, the experience of the 2016 election. And part of that was because I, I lived in a Republican town uh, and I had friends who voted for him, which I also took personally. And part of it was because I felt that I couldn't say anything. Uh, so I felt sort of trapped by uh, the fact that he was in the Oval Office and, you know, I couldn't even respond on Twitter. So right. that, I, you know, my, my voice was taken away from me and I, it just triggered me in a way I hadn't been triggered in a long time. And I've had a post-traumatic stress disorder for very long time. It, it has nothing to do with Donald. It has nothing to do with my family even. But for very complicated reasons, his elevation uh, just made it really difficult for me to function. Uh, so I ended up going into treatment um, for my PTSD for a couple of months uh, because I just couldn't handle what was going on uh, because I, as, as a lot of us did, I felt completely helpless. But then there was also that personal aspect of it that just kind of pushed me over the edge. And, and let's be, you know, I, I think it's so important to remind people of this because I think now you are, um, to some extent, you're Mary Trump, you know, sharp Trump critic, but you're, you've developed a um, identity that's beyond that, right? But people forget, like, where Mary emerges is that she plays a critical, critical role in providing documentation and information as to the extent of the criminality <laughs> of the Trump enterprise. And, uh, you know, to, to have gone from a place of feeling powerless and um, in, in, intensely powerless to the point where you, you, you seek out some help and you get some therapy and you work through some stuff, then to come out so fierce and um, brave, frankly. I mean, what Mary did going against Donald Trump is a nasty business. Ask anyone that's engaged with the Trump family. So um, I think it's so important just to, to, to talk a little bit about how you came out of that in 2017 and then really, you know, start start to see a role for yourself in not in, in helping society uh, get through this collective trauma. Could you talk a little bit about that? It's interesting because uh, kind of, while I was in the at the height, perhaps, of my dysfunction in twenty in the spring of twenty seventeen, uh, Suzanne Craig, an investigative journalist with the New York Times, knocked on my door, and I was having none of it. <laughs> Part of my feeling was, where were you when it could have mattered? Right. And I also I I was feeling so uh, isolated that just the fact that she came to my door really bugged me too. So I sent her away, but interestingly enough, even though I was very angry and said I had no, could had nothing to offer, I took her business card anyway. Uh, 
which I think uh, is what they call the tell, even if yes, it, it right, even <laughs> if it was an unconscious one. Um, and then you know, I went away for treatment, and uh, when I came back, she she had sent me some letters, and she kept she had called me a couple of times, um, and I may not have um, I may not have responded because. You know, my goal was to come back and, and to kind of get back into the world and get involved in things outside of politics that would give me some purpose and, and make me feel uh, that I was doing something meaningful, you know, whether it was working with Syrian refugees or whatever it was. Uh, you know, I had a plan. But three days before I came home, after having been away for a couple of months, I broke my foot very badly. Actually, I fractured my fifth metatarsal. Very, very badly. It would have been better if I'd broken it, actually. So I ended up sitting on my couch with my foot elevated for like four months. And uh, one night I saw Sue, Sue called and I answered the phone. <laughs> and because, uh, you know, what else was I going to do? Like fall back into the pit of despair, doom scrolling and obsessively watching MSNBC. And she explained to me very clearly how I could help. And then I did have something tangible to offer, which was 40,000 pages of documents, which I got a hold of and handed over to her and her team. And I got involved in the process to the extent that I was, you know, giving them background information and family history. And I realized that, uh, you know, I, I could make a difference. And I had no intention of letting anybody know that I was their source at all. Um, but I actually did believe it might make a difference. So it did, yes. Um, but then, it, then I think it was actually Sue who said, "You know, this is interesting stuff. Maybe you should write a book." And I, knowing Donald and what he's gone away with his entire life, I I felt that no one thing was ever going to take him down. And we'd seen that it was it wasn't nothing was cumulative. It was one he does one terrible thing. And then he does the next terrible thing, and it's as if the first terrible thing never happened, which is yeah. unique in my experience. I've never quite seen yes. anybody else get away with stuff the way he does. So I knew it was going to be, um, colloquially speaking, death by a thousand lashes. And if writing a book timed properly could help then that's what I needed to do. I needed to help people understand who this person was. I was willing to let some people off the hook for 2016 because the media had created this myth. He had created this myth. Republicans taken that over and created the myth or perpetuated the myth. And I think people outside New York didn't understand that. I wanted to make sure that it, going into November 2020, when people pulled that lever, they knew exactly what they were voting for or what they chose not to vote for. And if timing worked against you on book two, it was could not have been better on book one. Right, right exactly. And, and thank God for that, because it really pushed the conversation to a new level and gave people a lot of meat um, to, to buffer uh, criticisms that had previously been largely constrained into theoretic. So, um, yeah, so in that, so now you're doing it still, right? I mean, here's the thing is, and I want to, um, kind of transition the conversation now to contemporaneous Mary mm -hmm. <laughs> and Rachel and and the status <laughs> of our, our fine American experiment here. Mm -hmm. um, and you're still going, right? So like you, you and I are both uh, of the same mind that we're living in a singularly important moment of history. 
that what every one of us does, says, chooses not to do, chooses not to say, is a critical component to our, our to, to, to deciding what fate we end up with. And so um, you're talking about three things uh, that I think are really important right now. One of them is, is the COVID death toll, which uh, as you know, I am pushing really hard to put on media radar and, and get people to understand, look, they chose to kill people down in these yeah. red states. They adopted a pop. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't take a genius, by the way, to arrive at this thesis. All right, no. airborne virus and one that is ninety a vaccine that's ninety percent effective. So if you take those two things and and don't provide them, you're going to have more death and disease. Right? It's uh -huh. not. It's not you know computer science. So tell me, what do you think? It, we're coming into 2022. My argument is, is this is a, a crisis moment. People should be behaving as if we're in a crisis, not, um, you know, constraining themselves to the normal so-and-so. So what would you say to the audience, you know, um, what is this moment to them? And, and how do you think we can convey to them how important it is their engagement? I think one really critical thing people need to start doing on a personal level is, is figure out what democracy means to them, figure out what their relationship to democracy is, what their responsibility to democracy is. Because otherwise, if we're just looking at this, uh, if people are simply looking at where we are in terms of policy, um, then it becomes a question about policy, not about uh, the future of America. And people need to decide if they're perfectly comfortable losing the gains we've made in 200 and whatever years, and not just temporarily, but permanently. Because I believe with every fiber of my being that if the Democrats lose either the House or the Senate, but definitely the House in 2022, it's over. There won't, 2024 won't matter. It, it, it'll just be the, the last nail in the coffin, perhaps. But it, we won't be able to change anything. Um, right. I mean, here's here's the thing, right? Like, just to, to add in, like, um, so if we lose the house. It it can only mean that we're losing serious, some very critical governorships. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, so we lose Senate, lose the house. If that stuff is happening, you're going to probably lose Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin possibly just Wisconsin, possibly all three. Right. And Mary's not wrong, right? So it is true that like Biden controls the federal uh, branch and therefore the DOJ will be immune from the GOP um, during that final two years if they take control. But that's about the only good thing, Mary, right? <laughs> In yeah. terms of, of, of the constraint. So it, the whole enchilada comes down to 2022. And and how are you feeling about the current uh, trajectory? I think that there there is a lot that will happen between now and then. We can't forget about the t January 6th committee's hearings that will be televised, hopefully, <laughs> around the clock. Um, it seems quite clear, based on what we've seen from them already, that one of their goals uh, besides making an airtight, bulletproof case uh, that indeed what happened on January 6th was an insurrection that was not just started by, but organized by 
and um, per perpetuated by and supported by Donald and his administration. Uh, they also seem to be very careful about crafting a narrative that is going to help people understand exactly what happened in terms that are visceral and emotional and uh, that will appeal to people's humanity and sense of decency, hopefully. Uh, so that's huge. Uh, the DOJ remains an open question. Um, I'm horrified that nothing's happened yet, but that doesn't mean nothing will uh, between now and November. Um, and there are plenty of other cases going on, lawsuits against Donald, criminal investigations involving Donald, that, you know, if, if one or more is settled in some way uh, that in, he's indicted or something, maybe that will help break the fever of some people who seem, <laughs> seem to be uh, unwilling to grapple with reality. Um, so I think all of that having been said, uh, Democrats just need to, need to fight. They need to fight with, in a way that suggests they understand what is really at stake. That's, and that, I think that's, you know, I mean, so when I listen to a Merrick Garland uh, presser, which are rare, right? But he's, he's given us a couple statements now in terms of what we can read into the DOJ and Biden. I understand that there's constraints, and I think Biden has been very strident given the constraint of being an American president, right? Um, but, um, you know, with Merrick Garland, like, you know, there a lot of people are, are um, I think, failing to read between his words, right? And I think he has made some pretty... Um, you know, intentional, intentionally vague, but also strategically uh, clued um, language, things like he understands, you know, urgency, uh, to, you know, justice is slow, but he, that, that, that he understands this is an urgent matter. And, you know, when he says that he could mean, well, it's urgent to the nation's, you know, business. But I think what he means is he understands that there's a clock running right now and it, and it will expire at the inauguration in 2024, 25, um, of the next president, which will either be a Democrat or Biden, or it's going to be a Republican, right? And if it is a Republican, I, I think it is safe to assume that even if we have criminal convictions or cases going on federally, what the first thing that would happen is the DOJ will dissolve a lot of that, right? Uh, under the next version of Bill Barr, or God knows it could be Bill Barr himself for all we know, right? <laughs> like, so, um, you know, when, when we talk about stakes, I think it's just so important for people to understand the rule of law can only help us if it is still uh, applicable. And when you look at other civilizations that have uh, either collapsed completely into autocracy, totalitarianism, um, then, you know, w w one of the first things you're going to see is it, when the power grab comes, law gets suspended, right? The law is the law until it is suspended. <laughs> and so I think it's really imperative for people to understand 
you know, and here, let me ask you this, Mary. I know you think uh, there's still potential for Donald Trump. I, I do, too. I think there's potential for him to run. And I think you and I both um, reached that conclusion on the same merit, which is that Donald Trump, his only way of avoiding prosecution in jail is to be in office of some capacity, right? I think that's why he's going to put pressure on getting the caucus to pick him for Speaker of the House, since you don't have to be a sitting member of the House, because he is looking for legal immunity, and he's also looking for a platform back into the public conversation. <laughs> so, um, but that but that said, Mary, I want you to put your psychiatrist, uh, psychology hat back on for one second, and we're going to close out thinking about this instead. Do you agree or disagree that DeSantis next in line to Trump, A, and B, probably more dangerous at the end of the day? What do you think? Is DeSantis more dangerous? Um, yeah, than Donald Trump. Let's say if he, if he was the Republican nominee in 24. I, honestly, I think um, the thing, of, this is the thing about people at the top of the Republican Party, including DeSantis. Um, most of them are smarter than Donald. Uh, they're more measured. They have more impulse control. Um, they're in their way more devious. Uh, they understand the system in a way Donald never did. But on the other hand, they don't have the one thing that made him possible, which is his charisma. So is DeSantis more dangerous in the Oval Office, absolutely. Is he more dangerous as a candidate? I'm not sure, because I don't know that he would have the same kind of appeal. Um, I think, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we do know he's he's doing things <laughs> to, to try to make people like think he's Donald Trump. I mean, literally like the hands. Did gestures. you see that video? That was one of the creepiest <laughs> things I've ever seen in my life. Cause yeah. it's like, he's literally I... just watching videos of Donald and, you know, uh, learning how to mimic his hand gestures. And that's fine, but you cannot learn how to mimic chem uh, charisma. You know, but here's the tell for me, though, right? That 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 whoever, either himself or someone around him, was smart enough to think, "Hey, let's start putting him in frumpled blue suits with, <laughs> you know, distinctly red ties, mm -hmm. and you know, have him studies." That shit is nefarious, right? And like the strategic brain that that that, that taps into is Joseph Goebbels. Okay, like right. if you were if you were to able to resurrect him from the dead. And put him as an advisor of the Republican Party, and you know he was trying to get you know trying to get the next Republican elected. He'd probably look at Donald Trump as a bad bet at this point, and he'd be looking at DeSantis. And the one piece of fucking advice that he would give him is to do the shit that he's doing. And so why that worries me is that is exactly as Mary just pointed out, the um, Hollies, the Cruises, definitely the Hollies, definitely the Tom Cottons and the DeSantises the authoritarian or autotic autocratic wing of the Senate and, and, and Florida, of course, as, as a governor, those guys, they have impulse control. So they have all of the other shit that Donald Trump has, the narcissism, the authoritarianism, cruelty. the desire for full, t yeah, the cruelty, the, you know, the spin, the spinning, the gaslighting, all those skills. 
and they can control themselves. And to me, that is an extremely dangerous quality. Yeah, and again, I think that makes them infinitely more dangerous as leaders. I'm not entirely sure it makes them as effective as candidates. Uh, and that's simply because of the, chem- uh, the not chemistry, I keep saying, charisma thing. And you're right, I, that's, that is why they're focusing on the externals, you know, the window dressing, the suits, the hand gestures, the, probably the facial expressions and the, uh, the way they talk or the way they bully. Uh, you know, we saw DeSantis bully a bunch of high school students like a piece of garbage he is a month or so ago. Um, so I kind of hope it doesn't come to any of this. But, um, you know, we, we really do have our work cut out for us because especially if the Republicans win anything in 2022, the danger then becomes that it kind of doesn't, it won't matter who their candidate is because they will have rigged the system even farther in their favor uh, that there will never be a free and fair election again. That's exactly right. I mean, that's why I, I you know, within my own work and my own strategy, I'm, I'm strongly urging the, a, a lot of investment into those big three Midwestern states mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, the electoral college pathway runs through there and uh, you got to have a free and fair election administrator yep. at the head of those states if you want to have a free and fair election in 24, folks. So, yep. Mary, I'm so glad you could come back on the show. I could talk to you forever, but I'm dedicated to a condensed time this season so that my listeners can get all of their fill in one commute. Um, (laughs) So it's been so great to have you. Please, everybody, check out Mary's two books. If you haven't, um, if you only checked out the first one, don't sleep on the second. It's a great read. And I think it really uh, is is actually kind of, uh, what's the word, Um, you know, cathartic uh, for us, though uh, all of us have, have suffered trauma at societies maybe it's just society's collective pain but um i think it does personalize the trauma as you uh so rightly pointed out uh especially for people like us who are who care about the collective good of the communities around us so thanks for coming on mary rachel it's always such an amazing time talking to you so i really appreciate your having me on